I think that I'd have a lot of very unhappy days if, if I were not working in a collaborative environment. I sort of spin on like a social axis. So the part of the job that I love the most is when I'm collaborating with other people, whether it's the writers in the script phase of the show or the directors and, and producers and cast and all the amazing crew, like uh, once something is up and running. listening to Inside Acting, a podcast dedicated to demystifying the inner and outer game of success in the entertainment industry. I'm Trevor Algott. And I'm AJ Meyer. And in episode 312, we have part one of my interview with none other than da, 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 the prolific powerhouse that is Damon Lindelof. That's right. You heard me right. Damon, if you don't already know, is a writer, producer, and showrunner, and is best known for his work on the game-changing television series Lost. He also is the showrunner on HBO's The Leftovers and the upcoming Watchmen, as well as helping to create and write the current Star Trek reboot films. Uh, in part one, we discussed Damon's early influences growing up in New Jersey, what he learned in film school at NYU, at Tisch there, the major differences between film and television from the perspective of the writer, and hear about the challenges behind producing a television epic like Lost. Uh, not to sound pedantic, but if you're a writer, you should definitely be grabbing a pen and a paper for this one. It is jam-packed with wisdom from a down-to-earth professional at the top of his game. That, and a little announcement about the future of IAP coming up in episode 312. Stay with us. Support for this episode of Inside Acting is brought to you in part by Rehearsal Pro, the current version of Rehearsal, the essential app for actors. It's now available right now as we speak, as we record, as you listen inside the iOS app store for your iPhone or iPad or iPod Touch. If you want to learn your lines, be off book for your auditions, explore your character, make stronger, bolder choices, and do a bunch more cool stuff that's going to help you book the office time and time again, go to rehearsal.pro slash IAP right now where you can learn all about the kick-ass, awesome, amazing, totally useful new features in this newest version of Rehearsal, the groundbreaking, absolutely essential app designed by actors for actors. You will not regret it. Go, go now. Rehearsal.pro slash IAP. Hey, buddy. It's been a minute since we've uh, we've been uh, able to put out an episode. I know you had a couple things going on. You were effectively off-grid for at least a, a good week there. You went uh, back to Yosemite, I think. Went to Yosemite. That was not the, the major part of that trip. It was mostly spent in uh, Lake Tahoe, which, oh, God, I can't wait to go back. Um, oh, speaking of, good grief, special major... Props and shout out to IAP longtime listener and supporter Ryan Adams. Homeboy hooked it up. I got an on tape audition for an off Broadway musical while I was on vacation with my family in Lake Tahoe. And I was like, I'm going to have to put myself on tape in this Airbnb. Like, that's just what's going to have to happen. 
And Jasmine, in all her gorgeous wisdom, goes, you should reach out to Ryan. I was like, why didn't I think of that? Because women are smarter than men. So I did, and we totally filmed half my audition in his um, garage where he's got his little self-tape setup going on there. And I said, I said, dude, are you – you should be selling this to the other actors in Tahoe. Are you like – you know, putting this out there that you that you do this. Um, so if you're in Tahoe or anywhere in that area, I think um, not Carson City, maybe it's Carson City, anywhere sort of Tahoe adjacent, uh, hit him up, uh, find him on. I don't know. We'll, maybe we'll post a link to his Twitter or something on our on our page. He's got a fantastic setup. I mean, we shot this thing in like 4K, and it made me think. Okay, I gotta put. I got to change my settings on my phone to 4K to like match it because I did the other half in the Airbnb, sent it off to my reps, literally got back from them. That is the best on tape audition we've ever seen for musical theater. That's what they wow. said. So huge shout out to him. Uh, it was it was awesome. Um, and the vacation, it's, I'm like, I skipped right over the vacation part of it. It was great. Like it was so, I mean, talk about, the, uh, the modern actor story, like, of course I go out of town and of course I get an audition, but it's on tape and it's 2018. So I just recorded the damn thing. Um, anyway, cr crazy times we live in crazy. That's times. So cool, man. That's so cool. It's a great time to be an actor. It really is. So, so, uh, how the, just real quickly, how did the, you said your reps loved it. Did you hear anything? Did you have a callback or nothing? Not a thing. Not a thing. Yeah. Didn't hear anything. But you still have that victory feather in your cap for, hey, on vacation in some of the greatest, most beautiful national parks in the world, still was able to steal away, knock out an audition on camera. Yeah. And yeah. feel good about it. That's so freaking cool. Yeah, that man. was really good. But I did come home to um, three more auditions. Um, I got a callback for the NBC Diversity Showcase, which was very cool. Um I had another musical theater audition in town, actually, ironically, at our place of uh, of, em of employ, Trevor, uh, the Kirk Douglas Theater, um, and then a um, audition for a Genji Cohen pilot of uh, you know Weeds and Orange is the New Black theme. Dude. It was a cool week, considering that things were pretty damn dormant for a while. Um, it was nice to come home to that. I haven't heard a thing. I got a call back for the other musical, but I don't think I booked it because it's been like over a week. So, you know, tis what it is. I got another audition for, um, the Boston court theater in Pasadena next week. Who knows? I don't know. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like, uh, it's time to get back on stage. Even though, even though my goal for 2018 was to pay off credit card debt and, Working in theater is not the way to do that. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? Do they pay you, Trevor? Do, do they pay you to do this thing called acting? Have you ever booked that? I, I can't remember. I feel like you've always had big news about this every every year or so. Uh, yeah, well, it's starting now. I'm starting to realize it's not big news. It's a great opportunity. Not, it's not necessarily big news unless I actually, you know, uh, end up on stage. Um, no, I got a chance to go to one re uh, recently. I think it was last year, uh, the CBS Diversity Showcase, which was really cool. I had a couple of friends in it, um, and a mutual friend of ours, actually, Trevor, was in uh, one the year before I got to see it. And, um, you know, they're really cool, and it's a great opportunity, and some people end up with holding deals, which is like, what, what a dream come true. 
let us pay you to not accept a job from another network and you can just sit there while we develop something for you or not. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've had, I've, I've, um, auditioned now for uh, CBS, NBC, ABC, HBO, think that might be it, but multiple times. So like, at least like a dozen now or something. Does being ethnically ambiguous in this situation help you or hurt you? You think? I have no idea. I, I hope help me. Um, that's actually, that was the joke that I did on my self tape. It's what I'm very proud of this self tape. Actually, uh, Ben Whitehair and I did, he helped me, um, sort of put it together and we, we ended up writing a sketch of my slate. So my slate was a sketch in and of itself. And then I put a couple more scenes after that. So I started out, this is a true story. Uh, I started out by going, uh, hi, my name's AJ Meyer and I just tested positive. And then there was like this long silence and he, and he, as like the reader behind the camera was a character and he goes, wait, what? And I go for being middle Eastern. And then I held up my 23 and me results in front of the camera. And I was like, I was like, I just got back my 23 and me results and it corroborated what I was already suspecting that I'm part middle Eastern, part Spanish, part Italian, part Eastern European parts. And I went through all the things that I am, which is totally true. Um, and then I said, um, cast me and check off all your boxes. And Ben goes, you're still a dude. Cast me and check off most of your boxes. <laughs> now, is that the kind of thing that they encourage? Ad living like that? They encourage you to, um, they, they asked for, um, original characters. And so I was like, well, I'll just make the, I'll make this slate funny. Like I might as well. Um, so I did that. I actually recycled another comedy audition that I had. And then I sang a comedic song. Cause when I went to the CBS showcase, it was very much like a, it was, it was very much like a theater piece. Like there were songs in it and stuff like that. So I was like, maybe NBC is going the same direction. I don't know. But anyway, I don't think my callback was as strong as all that, but, um, still fun. Uh, we'll see who knows. I don't know. You asked the ethnically ambiguous question. So I, <laughs> meh. That's nah. awesome. 23 and me, man. I did that too recently. I got a, one of those kits for Christmas and I got my results back and I am far more French than I realized, uh, but mostly Scandinavian, uh, mostly uh, Viking in there. So you really are Thor. I, I have Thor blood in my veins. Support for this episode of Inside Acting is also brought to you in part by VO2GoGo.com, the award-winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best VO Training four years in a row. Visit VO2GoGo.com slash start for a free getting started in voiceover online class that will help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. That's VO2GoGo.com slash start. So we uh, alluded to an announcement about the future of IAP way back there 12, 15 minutes ago in the uh, intro to the episode. So, uh, yeah, we have some news. We, we took a, a little bit of time off, obviously, which we just talked about, um, just to sort of also get our ducks in a row about what's going to happen in the future. As you guys know, uh, my my time, and this is such a difficult 
been such a difficult thing for me. My time with IAP is uh, quickly approaching an end. Uh, and as to the future of IAP, that was sort of what had been up in the air for a little while. But after much conversation, much thought, uh, we think we've settled on a somewhat uh, instructive set of expectations for uh, people who have enjoyed uh, having the show as part of their journey all these weeks, months, and years. Do you want to maybe um, sort of begin this this announcement for us, AJ? Sure, Yes. I love the uh, trepidatious entrance into the most ambiguous announcement ever. Um, <laughs> I, I, didn't like, know. I was like talking. I was like, how am I going to dig myself how, out of this? Yeah, these words, they keep coming and they don't mean anything. Well, this isn't going to mean much more else. Um, so uh, Damon Lindelof is the um, last interview that we have in the can or lined up, uh, if you will, for the uh, foreseeable future and in terms of the era of inside acting that has been um, so dutifully helmed by Trevor Algat. So <clears throat> we have part one today, uh, part two next week, and then we will have our farewell to Trevor and farewell for now episode. Um, so essentially three more episodes, part one, part two, and then a farewell uh, episode. So episode 312, 313, 314, I can count, shut up. Episode 314 will be our um, our sort of signing off for now. The podcast will then go on a hiatus for an undisclosed amount of time while we sort of uh, reboot, revamp, figure out what uh, it's going to look like. And when it returns <clears throat> with sort of me – solo at the wheel, it will most assuredly look different. Um, it is, it is, um, yeah, I, I don't know how else to say it. It's going to look different, obviously not, and not just because, um, you know, we, um, will be saying goodbye to Trevor. So, uh, it will be back. It just will be different and, um, stay tuned for that. Stay tuned to our Newsletter will probably use that as a as a channel to get some information out, um, and at the very least, our social media, so our Twitter account, uh, especially our Instagram, um, we still have a YouTube channel, etc. In an effort to simplify and um, make things easier on uh, myself and and Jen, who is going to stick around um, as production coordinator, um, God bless her heart, she's a glutton for punishment. <laughs> to hang out with the two of us for as long as she has. But in an effort to simplify the the podcast, we will be sort of cutting back on a lot of the sort of um, additional um, tentacles or, or branches of the podcast. And one of those will be um, the membership. Um, so we have been emailing people who have been either signing up for or renewing their membership recently to let them know that this is the case. Um, most people have elected to, you know, get a, a refund on um, their most recent um, re-up. But some people, through you know this, the kindness of their heart and their generosity, have decided to essentially uh, allow the podcast to keep the, the the money so that we can put it into the podcast and keep it online. Because no matter what happens, you know, it costs at least some money to publish produce, post, um, this thing week after week. So 
we really appreciate that. It's a very humbling thing still to this day, even after years of taking listener donations in some way, shape or form. And neither one of us has really made, um, you know, a, a dime off of that, um, other than to, you know, pay for maybe our time and in, in, in editing or producing or, or maybe a tank of gas to get to and from a bunch of interviews that were across, uh, Los Angeles. So, um, it, it's all gone back into the podcast all these years. And so for those of you who have, you know, asked for your, your money back, no hard feelings whatsoever, um, makes complete sense. You're not necessarily getting the value that you thought from that. And for those of you who, um, are sort of allowing us to continue the podcast with your donation, that's also, uh, very generous of you. And, um, and just a special announcement or a special word, um, rather to those of you who have been in the membership, uh, at any point, either from the beginning or joining later. And I'm sure Trevor will have a lot to say about this as well. We just want to say thank you. Um, it's been such a beautiful community in there. Um, I've really enjoyed connecting with listeners in a, in an even deeper, um, manner and learning uh, more about them and what people's, you know, hopes and dreams and wishes and fears and, um, have been, you know, we, we went through an entire cycle of, of the artist way in the membership. So, so, you know, people really got to know each other and really got deep with one another. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And, and this community is what is inspiring me to want to keep going in some fashion. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. And I know I'm going to turn the mic over to you, Trev, because I know that you probably have a lot to say about, about that aspect, especially when it comes to the membership. Yeah, well, amen to everything you just said. Uh, I enjoyed the membership as well. I, I think it was a really fun uh, time in the podcast's history. And I, I also really enjoyed getting to know people through the various uh, conversations that we had over there. I think it proved to not be exactly what we had envisioned at the beginning for uh, a number of reasons, but I'm really grateful that we had the opportunity to try it out. And I think there were a lot of things that happened in there that we can be really proud of. And I, I believe, you know, if you just think this was a massive failure, you can feel free to message me offline. But I believe that uh, there was some really valuable stuff that, that uh, happened in there and that we were able to exchange and add to people's lives and journeys. Um, that said, I just want to get sort of concrete uh, about some of the, the financial stuff because we use PayPal. Uh, to uh, connect people to uh, the podcast in a financial sense. And PayPal, as far as I know, does not have a feature to notify uh, people when it is going to renew them uh, for uh, an annual or a monthly charge. It just sort of happens as far as I can tell. And I, I don't, I haven't been able to find an option that will sort of give you a heads up that you're about to be charged again. So if if uh, you have been charged and you have not received an email from the IAP team for whatever reason, feel free to, number one, search your email because every time that happens, I email people. Uh, and then secondly, if you didn't hear from us, just, just shoot us an email and let us know. Uh, we'll be very happy to find a win-win situation uh, to, to make it you know all good. We definitely don't want there to be any hard feelings either way uh, regarding um, your contributions to the podcast because you guys really do keep this thing going. Literally, it would not be online without you. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you know, we, we all got bills to pay. And uh, if, if it's for something that maybe is not going to be uh, of use to you in the immediate future, we completely understand if you'd rather siphon that money towards uh, something else in your life. So 
I just wanted to kind of put that out there into the world that um, we want to be sensitive to that. And uh, you know where to find us. Please go ahead and email us. Support at insideacting.net is the best way to get that process started. Uh, like AJ said, and I'll just repeat this and then we can move on. If you uh, are totally cool letting the podcast uh, put that money towards keeping this thing online, all 310, 11, 12 episodes that we've done over the past nine years, uh, they do cost money to live online. So if you guys would like to keep uh, that happening, that going, uh, we're very happy to have your support in that. That means it'll be online a lot longer, and we have people discovering the show from all over the world every single week, writing to us, thanking us, telling us that they're just digging in now, how excited they are to have uh, these, res- you know, this is a resource on their journey. So everybody who has ever contributed to the podcast, uh, that's for you. That's, that is, congratulations and a thank you to you, uh, because um, it wouldn't be online for those people to discover were it not for your generosity. So that's that. That's all I got to say about that. Beautiful. Thank you, sir. Uh, as uh, as usual, we uh, we both said the things the other didn't. So, <laughs> appreciate that. Appreciate that more than you could ever know. Absolutely, man. Um, cool. Well, um, I guess we should roll into this interview. Yeah, I think so, man. I can't wait. Um, yeah, it's always funny, right? That whole like thing where one of us interviews and the other person hasn't had a chance to hear it. Um, you're gonna dig this, Trevor, because I know that you know writing is something that you have and continue to explore. And, uh, you know, I ask Damon about, like, what's it like to transition from, like, being that, you know, in that writer mindset to being now you're running a business because, you know, you're the the showrunner. And um, I love how down to earth, like I said in the introduction, he is and how he he keeps it real. Um, He doesn't uh, doesn't pull any punches and doesn't try to sugarcoat it at all. So. You know, someone might listen to this and be really inspired and someone else might listen to this and be like, oh, actually, I, I thought I wanted to do that, but I really don't. Just as valuable. So, yeah. Just as valuable. Exactly. So um, enjoy this. Uh, it is jam packed and uh, part two even more so. And we'll catch you on the other side. This is AJ, and I am so excited to be sitting here with uh, none other than Mr. Damon Lindelof. Uh, Damon is in, at least in part, responsible for a lot of um, amazing film and television that you have probably consumed. Uh, TV shows such as Lost and The Leftovers and films such as Prometheus and the the new Star Trek uh, reboots. Uh, he is a prolific writer and producer, and we're excited to have him here. So thanks for uh, taking the time to sit down with us. Dan. Wow, now I'm excited, too. <laughs> Who is this guy? Yeah. What? <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a partial resume. I, I, I kept it to uh, the, some, some of the highlights. Yeah, let's, uh, we, 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 we can stick to what you just said. Let's just forget everything else didn't happen. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, or or not? Maybe yeah. we'll dive into some of those and and talk about the uh, the the what you seem to think are trials as yeah. well as the 
<laughs> just try it's all trials and tribulations aj all of it <laughs> um cool well uh, i'd love to talk about you know where you uh kind of got your start and and what got you into this crazy uh business called show and mm-hmm. uh, and just kind of go from there uh i grew up in uh in northern new jersey um a town called teaneck my mother was a public school teacher my dad was uh worked for citibank so teaneck was um a suburb of new york city and a lot of the uh, uh, workforce commuted in to Manhattan, so we were right, basically right across the George Washington Bridge, and uh, had a pretty unremarkable uh, childhood there. Uh, you know, uh, pretty normal riding dirt bikes around, kind of like you know nice. Spielbergian uh, 1980s uh, existence. Um, but from you know, when I as as long as I can remember, I've always been. Uh, really interested in storytelling. Um, I was a pretty avid reader as a kid, so just kind of fell into books. I was an only child, so books were my sibling. And, you know, when my parents weren't uh, able to pay attention to me, which was uh, frequently because they were both working, um, uh, I I would curl up with a book. And then um, uh, by the time I was you know, five, six, seven, I started kind of writing my own stories, which were just like bad fanfic. <laughs> like, just like, here's my, my riff on Star Wars. So um, you're writing scripts on spec at, at yeah, five years old. I wouldn't old. say scripts <laughs> um, as much as, you know, just, just, just uh, little stories. And before I could write myself, I would, uh, I would dictate these stories to my mom, and she was kind enough to, uh, to, uh, to write, them, uh, write them down. Uh, non- nonsense and all, so they exist in in some form somewhere. But I just always loved uh, writing and uh, and making up stories, and kind of gravitated towards all that stuff all through um, uh, elementary school and uh, and into middle school and high school. And I had the benefit of just come you know running across a number of uh, teachers who really. Uh, could see my passion and kind of nurtured it as much as possible and opened up the doors to books that were probably a little bit over my head at the time. My dad um, was an avid sci-fi genre fan, sci-fi horror fantasy, and he started giving me Stephen King books when I was nine and ten years old, Uh, probably a little bit young for some of that stuff, but it completely and totally captivated me and I fell in love with it and I think that there's a lot of studies now about brain chemistry. Uh, this there, there's a school of thought called neuroplasticity, which mm. is that um, uh, your brain is uh, is is basically kind of forming uh, these connections between uh, neurons, particularly in that area when you're going through puberty. So what I was what I was reading and consuming uh, between the ages of sort of like 11 and 14 was like all that Stephen King. You know, Star Wars, sci-fi, fantasy, uh, and then of course a lot of comic books um, uh, as well. So it all kind of went into the blender, and I basically spent my professional career, you know, pouring out shakes <laughs> that were that were forged in that blender all those years ago. Thirty That's a years. Great ago. analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Your brain is a blender. We've talked about neuroplasticity on the podcast before. Believe it or not, I believe it. I think uh, one of Trevor's picks of the week was. Um, the brain, brain that, changes that changes itself. itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, uh, it's been a topic. Do you remember anything prior to the Stephen King stuff that was formative in like the five, six year old range before 
uh, puberty. Star Wars was the was mm. the you know that was in '77, and so it came out in May of '77, and I had just turned four, and my my parents brought me to see it, um, and so like that's kind of the first memory I the first movie I remember um, uh, going to see, and then my dad got. We had this sort of uh, like um, eight millimeter projector, and you could buy these little films uh, from Star Wars, including the scene where Luke and Han are in the Millennium Falcon, and they're they're blowing away the Tie Fighters, um, just over and over and over and over again in our house. And so it was kind of like all Star Wars all the time. And then Empire came out in in eighty and and Jedi in eighty three. So. That was like that's what I was really kind of mainlining was everything Star Wars and they 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 I, the action the Kenner action figures came out um, after the initial movie and my dad mail ordered them and so I started playing with the Star Wars figures and making up my own stories for them and um, and uh, and all that stuff so. Um, and there were all these books like uh, Star Wars, not just the novelizations, but you know, like the Adventures of like Han Solo, which has, I guess, finally been made into a movie. Yeah, I was going to say. Later. But um, there, like anything Star Wars, I was just sopping up with a with a piece of toast. I love hearing these stories though, because you know we're sitting here in your office. Thank you for you know uh, allowing us in here, and it's covered in action figures. There's a giant. At at Walker behind yes. your uh, desk, huge Star Wars posters. We've got all these action figures and figurines and stuff. And I see, you know, uh, uh, the Watchmen comics, which I know you're a big fan of, yep. and all these other comic books around. It's like you grew up and professionalized your childhood, which is like a lot. I mean, I can't imagine how many kids out there dreaming of, you know, growing up. Uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, Spielberg. It's like um, Super 8. Yes. There's kids who want to, like, make a movie and then. And they end up going on this, you know, this big adventure as a result of it. The unhealthy side of this coin is it's a little bit man-childy, you know. But at the same time, I think kind of surrounding myself with the trophies of of all the things that I love just it just makes me so happy to be in in this environment. And it reminds me of how liberally I steal from all of those things. <laughs> but as as you were talking about that particularly mentioning Spielberg I remember there was this amazing stories in the first I think it was in the first season of amazing stories where Mark Hamill of all people it's it's basically like it starts with him as a kid and it takes him all the way through to being an old man but he he collects all this memorabilia and stuff from his childhood that he loved and the whole amazing stories is his parents are just trying to get him to throw it away and he's completely and totally fixated on it. And eventually, they kick him out of the house. And he takes all of his memorabilia and he just, like, throws it into this truck, which is sort of, like, overthrowing with, uh, overflowing with this stuff that he loved. And the ending of the story is, you know, he's, like, sort of parked by the side of the road. And some guy is, is going through his stuff and he finds, uh, like, Action Comics number one in there. And you you realize all this stuff is just like of immense, incredible monetary value yeah. uh, now. And I, I I can't remember how it ends. I remember it kind of being like a little bit sad because it's like, oh, because it's worth a lot of money. Does that is that the happy ending? Does he have to sell this stuff? Like, or is he just going to keep it because he seems like it's a homeless guy? And it was Mark Hamill who is uh, I don't Childhood know. So, hero yes. and- so I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. But the fact that I can now kind of make a, a living. Um, sort of reprocessing and remixing all this, all this stuff is, um, you know, 
people say, I'm living my dream. And sometimes when I hear other people say that, I'm just like, yeah, good for you, buddy. Um, but in my case, it's, uh, it's absolutely and totally the truth. Yeah. I feel like that, that uh, trope is one that is, is, is explored a lot, though. I'm thinking of, like, uh, Kenneth Lonergan's This Is Our Youth. Yep. You know, where he, he, at the end, he's, like, got all these action figures and toys and stuff from his childhood, and he's trying to figure out if he's going to sell them for money and, um, and clean that up. No, it's 40-year-old virgin, too. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, whole, same, yeah. yeah, that same, that <laughs> same thing it, uh, comes up uh, a lot. Um, well, you, I mean... Uh, we're sort of you know fast forwarding ahead, but you you you're married with a with a child now, right? Yes. So like you you have you have some responsibilities. Like yes. How, how old is? Uh, he's eleven. He's eleven. Yeah, so you uh, kept a human child alive for eleven years. You have lar- some responsibility. largely because of my wife. Yes, but I've <laughs> I've, I've helped on occasion. You have yeah. not been entirely irresponsible, is what I'm saying. No, so. that's true. I I do grown up things. And <laughs> I pay bills and taxes and uh, and try to be a good productive member of society outside of uh, making uh, silly television shows and movies, um, doing my best to uh, to be a grown-up. But I don't think that there's anything wrong with kind of Peter Panning to some degree. I mean, as long as you're as long as you're doing the other stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't ever uh, want to lose my boyhood. Right. Well, and I think that's, you know, if people say you're living the dream. That's that's I think that's a big part of it. You know, being able to, you know, have uh, success, uh, at least financially, you know, uh, and 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 artistically, um, while you know doing what you love yeah. every day. Couldn't you know? agree more. Do you feel like you you do when you show up to to the office every day that you're that you're doing what you love at least the majority of the time? Yeah, um, there there are good days and there are bad days. I'm, uh, you know, sometimes the job is really hard. Um, sometimes you get stuck and I, it's not, it's not writer's block per se, because one of the great things about television is you just have to kind of keep the train moving. It never, it never stops, but there's, there's a lot of sleepless nights when something just isn't quite working and you don't know how to solve it yet. Um, and, uh, uh, the, the drive into work is a long and sort of frustrating drive and the slot, you know, we're, we're sitting in my office now, but it takes me about you know, 90 seconds to walk down to the writer's room. And some, one of the, some, sometimes the worst feeling that I have is walking down there and I'm like, I have nothing to bring them mm. today. Like, I'm, and fortunately they're all geniuses. So they, they can identify when I'm struggling and then they, um, and then they step up and, uh, and take control. And so, um, I, I don't think that I would, I think that I'd have a lot of very unhappy days if, if I were not working in a collaborative environment. Movies yeah. are, are a lot more like that where you're you're isolated and alone and um i i'm a i i i sort of spin on like a social axis so the part of the job that i love the most is when i'm collaborating with other people whether it's the writers in the script phase of the show or the directors and and producers and cast and all the amazing crew like uh once something is up and running but in that period of just kind of like putting my fingers on the keyboard if I if I don't know exactly what I'm about to write, it can be very unpleasant. I've never. I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about the difference in the level of collaboration between film and television. Do you think that's just because of the writers' room, or do you think it extends out to other areas of production? I think both. I mean, 
the 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 role of the writer is entirely different traditionally between television and movies, and so particularly in this era in which I become in which I became a professional television writer. So I think the my my first paid gig was in you know ninety seven or ninety eight somewhere around there. So I'm 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 getting close to twenty years as a professional writer, but right around the time that that was happening. The, the idea of the writer being king in TV. Certainly, you know, we were aware of um, of the John Wellses of the world, of the David Milch and, and Stephen Bochkos. But in, in the ensuing 20 years, everybody who sort of came along from J.J. to Joss to Shonda Rhimes to Jill Soloway to Matt Weiner, like all of... Um, and, and now too many amazing names to mention, but... The, the idea of the writer is is in charge of the television enterprise. In movies, the writers are completely, totally interchangeable for the most part. It mm. doesn't mean that they don't do a lot of uh, really important work, but, um, you know, even for the biggest sort of like Marvel franchises, for example, if, if someone is a huge Marvel fan and they've seen every Marvel movie since Iron Man... If you ask them coming out of Infinity uh, War, who wrote this movie, a, a super fan, they do not know the answer to that question. And that doesn't mean that the writers haven't contributed greatly. It just means that writers are completely and totally interchangeable in movies. And so I think that the collaboration is that the writer comes in and will get the script to a place where the director is either happy with it or gets it, moves it far enough down the field for them to be re- replaced by another <laughs> writer. But the movies that I've worked on where I came in after other writers, like uh, Prometheus, for example, this, this writer, John Spates, had written a great draft and, and Fox was you know, uh, wanting to replace him. There's no other word for it. And um, and I read his draft and I was like, this this is a really good script, kind of like, what is it that you guys are looking yeah. to do differently? And I think for them, it was just um, between them and Ridley, it was just like, well, what do you mean? This is just what we do. You know, this is how it works. Like, you know, we, but so by time most movies are are finished, you know, five or six or or in the case of like something like Cowboys and Aliens, which I worked on for four weeks and ended up being, you know, was in develop was a developed script over the course of 15 years. And we ended up sharing writer credit with like seven other writers, Mm. but there were seven writers who worked (laughs) on Cowboys and Aliens that didn't get any credit. And so you're just taking, you know, um, idea from column a and mixing it with, you know, third act from column C. And so I think that when you kind of take that approach, the, I've always just said, wouldn't it be cool in movies to just say these are the four writers that we want to have work on it this guy is is strong on story this woman is really comedic um uh this writing team is like super strong on action let's just put them all in a room together and they'll just write the script collaboratively versus this kind of like relay race of i hand the baton to you and then i you know, John Spates and I never would have spoken if I hadn't called him or written him an email saying, hey, they've now hired me to take your script and it's awkward, but I kind of want to talk to you about what I'm going to do because our name, we might end up sharing a writing credit and it'd be very weird for us to run into each other at the premiere, <laughs> never, never having spoken or yeah. met. Um, but that's just the way that the system is set up. So you, you would love to see it 
take some of the cues from the the, the television world and, and sort of function in, in that way, like have a collaborative, like a writer's room, but for film. But, right, but the chat, yeah, <clears throat> but that's very pie in the sky because the, yeah. the only way, the only way that a writer's room actually functions is if someone is basically sitting at the head of the table and they're the foreman of the jury, you know, um, and. And maybe that's the wrong analogy because the foreman is just a juror who is going to be speaking on behalf of the jury, but their vote doesn't count for anybody anymore. But someone has to be the decision maker in that room or else you're going to have four different egos sort of battling out for what the best idea is. And I would say the only way to make it work is to put the director in that room because the director is going to is, is going to be the auteur of the film. But if they're there, it ultimately... The script is in service of what the director's vision is. That's the way that movies uh, traditionally work and work best, in my opinion. Um, you know, I a, a lot of the movies that I really respond to are made by directors with incredibly strong uh, senses of vision. And you, you'll also sort of tend to see that they've either written the script themselves or they have some sort of writing credit or there's only one writer that they've worked with. So if you go and see Social Network... Aaron Sorkin is the only one who wrote on Social Network and yeah. Fincher directed that. But um, I think that if you put four A-list screenwriters in a room together and ask them to collaborate, they'd be down for the idea, but they'd want to know who was in charge. Right. Who's the one who's <laughs> saying, yes, we're doing that. Huh. That's interesting. The the sort of... Uh, who Who's going to be the person that, that corrals all the, all the egos? It's... It, I think about I'm I'm a, a big uh, sports fan, mostly hockey, and I think about that when it comes to like the coaches. Like that seems to be like one of their biggest a, a coach one of a coach's biggest um, challenges in professional sports these days seems to be like just making sure that they they are they are massaging the the egos in the right way so that the the team actually works. Um, we had. Uh, Kevin Murphy on the show a while back. Um, he's the showrunner on Desperate Housewives, and I think um, he's also from Teaneck, New Jersey. Kevin, I he's, know he's from the East Coast. Yeah, he's from somewhere close close by to me. I yeah, think. yeah. Um, yeah. It, it just reminded me something that he said on the show. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. That I thought was really fascinating was because uh, you were talking about the foreman, uh, even though you said it wasn't the, the a perfect analogy. Uh, the foreman, the foreman analogy. He he was talking about how like in this era of um, television especially the, when the when the when a writer with a really good idea writes you know a talented writer writes a good script and and, and sort of brings this this IP to the table all of a sudden they often in this era get asked to be the showrunner they get mm-hmm. asked to be that foreman and now all of a sudden this person who you know I forget how he put it he said you, this is a person who used to sit in their underwear alone in a room and write is now like the head of a company mm-hmm. called whatever that TV show And you're not allowed is. to wear your underwear. <laughs> and you're not allowed to wear your underwear. You're allowed to wear it, but you have to wear stuff over. <laughs> yeah. And that's so, a good thing. So um, I'm wondering from, you know, just in your experience, we have you sitting here. What has that been like for you? Did you feel prepared when you were put into the position of like now you're you know, EP or you're, you know, running the show or you're the head of the, that writer's room table. Completely and totally unprepared. I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like I, I was prepared to make, to, to come up with stories and write scripts. Like that didn't come easy. I had a lot of experience. So 
I was, um, you know, I spent five years in other people, in other showrunners, writers rooms before I had to run my own. So I felt like I understand how this works. And fortunately, Carlton Cuse, who I ended up partnering with on Lost, was my first mentor. He hired me on, on Nash Bridges, which was in its final season, and, sh- and basically showed me how a, ri- how a writer's room is supposed to work. And, and then my, my job after Nash Bridges was on this NBC show called Crossing Jordan, also run by a pro, this guy Tim Kring, who had, who had uh, cut his teeth on a show called Providence. And although Crossing Jordan was his, the first show that he was running, he, he just knew what he was doing. So they were very um, um, uh, great learning environments for me. Uh, but that, that's not show running. And so when JJ and I met in 2004, he had run both Felicity and the, I think the first two seasons of Alias. Maybe I think Alias might have been in its third year or halfway through its third season at around the time that he and I met. And he said to me when we were first working on The Lost Pilot, just so you know, you're going to run this show hmm. because I'm not, you know, I've got Alias and I, uh, and I kind of want to go and direct movies. And halfway through the, um, the editing process of Lost, I came in one Sunday because we had to edit it v- very quickly. I came into the editing room and Tom Cruise was just sitting in the editing room with next to J.J., and JJ was like, "Hey, Damon, this is Tom." And I was like, "Hi, Tom." Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, oh, oh, hello. yeah, right. But in that moment, I realized, like, oh, JJ's serious. He is not, you know, Tom Cruise is not here to hang out on a Sunday because he just wants to see how the Lost Cut is coming along. <laughs> He's JJ is going to go off and do something with Tom Cruise, and lo and behold, JJ got Mission Impossible Three, and so suddenly Lost got picked up. Um, and we were all in New York in the middle of May and, and I was running the show. And so we had shot this pilot in record speed and they ordered, you know, 12 more episodes of Lost and we had to be back in production in mid July. Um, and we had, we had a group of writers that a great group of writers that had been working while the pilot was being shot, but the, the production, um, the magnitude of the production, the fact that we were shooting the show in Hawaii with an incredibly uh, massive cast, um, that the show was expensive, that the show was genre, that the show was heavily serialized. Just going in and managing the writing of those first kind of like six episodes or seven episodes, um, just writing them and figuring out what an episode of Lost was and how we could produce it for a navigable fee and working with Jack Bender who came on to direct and so going back and forth commuting between LA and Hawaii um, that was basically July through October uh, for me and I was not only completely and totally ill-prepared but I I was going to quit and in fact tried to quit multiple times not mm-hmm. for the not for the purposes of, of telling a funny anecdote but like legitimately said to JJ can I I'm quitting to you I and and he said what what can I do um to uh uh to change your mind and I said I need a partner like this job is just too big I whether or not I know how to do it or I'm capable of doing it I'm just completely I was 30 maybe 30 I think I just turned 31 actually and so I was just emotionally unequipped and also when you're show running you actually have to have knowledge of um, like business, yeah, you know that, how how budgets work, and the really hard part, management. Um, the hardest part 
the hardest part of this job to this day. I've been doing it and I'm 45. So I've been show running now for 15 years is firing people. And you're going to have to do it. Like it's the worst part. And I was just basically like, I'm going to come in and I'm not going to fire anybody. Everybody's just going to work out great. Everybody, you know, I'm going to be so good at hiring people that I'll never have to fire people. And so just the, and again, cry me a river, but the emotional stress of firing someone, of of doing that money ball thing where you bring them into your office and you're like, it's not working out and this person has a family and they were really t- – Firing people who are assholes is easy because they kind of know. Like it's just like, dude, get out of here, yeah. <laughs> you know. But most people are trying their best, and it's just not working out. You know, it's just not. They're they're just not getting it for whatever it is. Whether they're writers or they're working in the co- like all those things. Even actors, you know, on Lost, we were constantly like bringing in new characters and stuff, and so to call someone up. And, and say, we're killing off your character. It wasn't because the first guy that we killed off was this guy, Ian Summerhalder, who was doing an amazing job. He was a great actor, such a good guy. Like, and the show, the, the, it was like, we're doing the island show and the stakes are life and death. We're going to have to kill one of these people. Who's it going to be? And calling him and basically saying to him, we're killing you off, like, was the, w- one of the worst days of my life. And, but again, like, what a, <laughs> boohoo for me what about ian you know so like that there's a there's a cold sort of like impersonality that is required to to be a functional showrunner that flies in the opposition of what makes good writers good which is that we're empathic and we're sensitive and we you know and we like we can look at people and say like they there is so much more to this human being than what they are just showing me. And, you know, and so all those things keep you up nights and nights and nights and nights when you have to, you know, uh, like let the guillotine fall on their head. Yeah. They're antithetical skill sets. Yeah. You know, it's, that's, and I'm still, you know, now it's something that I realize I have to do, but it's not like someone said to me, it gets easier. It hasn't, you know, (laughs) it's like, it hasn't. And I'm not sure I want it to. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, th- I mean... I, I that lo- said, AJ, I'm going to have to let you go. Okay, all right. Well, it was nice meeting <laughs> yeah. you. Um, it's not because you didn't do a great job. <laughs> uh, wow. I, yeah. I, 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 as soon as I leave here, I'm tweeting that I got fired by yeah. Damon Lindelof. Yeah. That's, that's going to be... Uh, Hilarious. I can't wait. Um, I do love Moneyball, though, because, you know, Jonah Hill is having that same struggle, and then Brad Pitt just, like, brings this guy into his office, and he's like, hey, I've, uh, we traded you to the Kansas City Royals. Um, go talk to Jim, uh, clean out your locker, and uh, thanks a lot for uh, for being for being an you know an Oakland A like yeah. and that's and they're like that's it and it's like yep that's it, that's it. Mr Giambi yeah yeah uh, reminds me of the uh, that montage in up in the air where they're flying oh, all right. these people at the beginning of the film like <laughs> yeah my God and get, and get great actor like I think J K Simmons gets fired in that in that movie like. Just like these really amazing... I think you're right. They did a great job of, uh, of, of casting that. Um, I'm so glad I asked you that because I, I feel like if we, if we get any other you know, uh, showrunners on the show, that's going to be one of the things that I, that I ask about because it's, it's, it is such antithetical skill sets you know, that to be a, a manager and to run a budget and all this. I'm like, 
I have no concept whatsoever about any of that. I can't imagine walking in. They're like, okay, now you have like this multi-million dollar budget to go and, you know, okay, go, put it all together. I'd be like, okay, I, now I need somebody. I'm just going to hire a producer or line, you know, multiple producers to kind of do that that work because I would have no idea where to where to begin. And that's how you do it. I mean, the reality is is I get I get this this title of showrunner bestowed upon me because people are interested the, the culture is interested in the creative, right? Where are the ideas coming from? Who's making the creative decisions in terms of like how the show is cast and what the tone of the show is and all that stuff. That's the sexy job. But the equally important job and in, in many ways more time consuming is are, are those other jobs. And it's not like I'm I've started doing that stuff. I just, in the case of Lost, Carlton came in and became my partner, and it does, Carlton was very involved in the creative, but he was able to do all that stuff um, that kind of complemented and enabled me to focus on what I do best, but, it, but the, the two things aren't mutually exclusive. And on The Leftovers and now Watchmen, this guy Tom Speziali, who I think actually might have worked with Kevin on Desperate Housewives, he's also an incredible writer, but he just has this incredible skill set to speak the language of writers, right? He can be in the room. He has great ideas. He can write scripts. Fantastic. But the majority of his time is basically spent liaising between the, the creative writing process and the executing of the show. So he right now he's at, we're a week away from starting production on Watchmen. He's in Atlanta right now, just just laying down the runway so that when I fly out there and we start rolling, all the heavy lifting and pragmatic and logistical work has been done by Tom. So cool. You gotta. I mean, you gotta have that person or yeah. persons, and they're co showrunners <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I yeah, mean, you know. Yeah, it's not just indispensable. It's just, right. it's essential. I, I did want to – this is going to probably be an odd segue, but I did want to ask you about your – because we kind of fast-forwarded very quickly. Um, I did want to ask about school, mm-hmm. um, and I'm wondering if you picked up any of those skill sets. At, you went to NYU? I did, yeah. yeah uh-huh. for, I went to Tisch. Tisch for, for film yeah, specifically? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. So in a program like that, um, that's a you know a pretty prestigious program. You know, did you pick up on any uh, of those skills, or they they more focus on like production, or did you focus on writing? Um, I mean, I feel like someone who ends up in a in a show running position or producing position would would benefit from like business classes, for mm-hmm. instance. So, w- what do you feel like if anything? What if anything do you feel like prepared you for uh, some of that uh, that other skill set? Um. That's a great question and one that I don't get asked very often. I mean, the reality is I, I went to Tisch from 91 to 94, and although my, my, my bachelor's degree is technically in film and television, the majority of the, of the, the, the focus was on film. And so, uh, you know, there, there was the beginnings of a TV program, and we had to take TV classes where we, we worked with television cameras um, primarily in kind of like a three camera like studio uh, setup but we were all there because we wanted to be filmmakers and we wanted to make movies and we wanted to direct and uh, Reservoir Dogs came out like my freshman year Um, you know Barton Fink and Reservoir Dogs came out in like September between like September and December of my freshman year and so everybody just wanted to be the Cone Brothers and Quentin Tarantino and 
Spike Lee was also an alum of, of NYU and had sort of famously maxed out credit cards to do She's Gotta Have It. And so those were the models for us, which is like we're going to make cool independent films in the, in, the, in the NYU, like Scorsese, Spike Lee – you know, Oliver Stone, you know, Tarantino obviously never went to NYU, uh, but like in, 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 the, in, in that vein. And yeah. so that's kind of what we were all chasing. There were a number of us who kind of gravitated towards one another who were kind of like, I kind of I li- I like E.T. Like, you like E.T.? Because it wasn't really cool, like, to be mainstream, to like movies and blockbusters you know, but we would all kind of gather. We would watch laser discs of these kind of of the classic Spielberg movies, and you know, Blade Runner kind of lived in that space where it was like it was artsy fartsy, and you know, and genre. Yeah. But I I think that I I kind of found my people who were 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 still sort of enamored with the industry, but the thinking was like fuck you, go to UCLA. You know, if that's <laughs> if that's the movie that you want to make, like there's a spot for you at SC. Like at NYU, we make like serious, weird black and white films <laughs> where a guy is flossing his teeth and looks into in his own eyes in the mirror and sort of contemplates like the cold wrath of existence and then kills himself. Um, and so that's what we were all chasing. And so, yeah, the, the good news is, you know, you take a production class and you have to go through the process of writing a movie, building a crew, like – and go and figuring out how to pay for it and you know taking out ads and backstage and getting actors and so you are at the age of 19 or 20 kind of managing this little fiefdom that is going to result in a you know in a 10 minute long you know piece of your soul um and that is helpful but i graduated um uh my my family was sort of firmly middle class border you know like not like people who some people identify as middle class who are actually sort of like upper middle class you know we had to take out a uh, we my parents had to take out a mortgage on the on on their home in order to so that I could go to NYU but the agreement was that I could only go for three years if I wanted to live in the city otherwise I could commute from Jersey and I was like I'm not going to college if if I can't go to college so we agreed that um that I would graduate in three years, and then I did a lot of work study and um, uh, uh, in order to achieve that. So, I, I gra- if I, I think that if I had done a fourth year at NYU, uh, I probably that it was in the curriculum. The questions that you're asking, sort of like more, more to more industry based business acumen, but like I just kind of I I, I speed dated you know film school, <laughs> and I got a lot out of it. And I made a lot of incredible friends who are still, you know, my friends to this day, um, many of whom came out to L.A. Um, so it, it was an indispensable chapter in my life. And I think that if I hadn't gone to film school, I most certainly would not be sitting here talking to you right now. But it, it's so the, – the industry just completely and totally changed um, in a very radical way as it tends to um, over the course of the next decade so that by the end of the 90s, you know, the kind of – the Sopranos was like, oh, you can make movies on television? On television yeah. You know, like yeah. it wasn't like it hadn't been done before. I mean there there was great TV. Hill Street had been made and I think ER even as a broadcast show was, sure. you know, was really pushing the, 
um, the, the Limits, West Wing was on by the late 90s, but yeah. it's like, once The Sopranos kind of came along, it was just like, oh, I want to do that. Right. You know, fuck movies. Like, I'm, I want to do that. Right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Hope you enjoyed part one of AJ's chat with Mr. Damon Lindelof. I'm a I'm a huge fan of the first three episodes, uh, first three seasons of Lost. Uh, I actually haven't watched past that for various reasons. And Prometheus is one of my favorite movies on which uh, Mr. Lindelof is credited as a co-writer. So I am super uh, excited to listen to everything he had to share. And you guys just heard it. So what happened? What happened? Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, everyone, right to Trevor, right now. Any, any, any big uh, sort of aha, debrief, sort of nuggetized wisdom that, that you want to highlight as a takeaway from this, AJ? Ooh, um, I kind of want to save it for the second part um, because it's just like it, it was. It was definitely one of those ones where I kind of, you know, it's like we could have, we could have absolutely released this as a standalone, just like, you know, me talking to him kind of, you know, episode because it was such a, you know, easy, natural, uh, organic conversation. Just kind of like led one sort of subject to another, and um, you know, I credit him a lot with that too. And then, you know, in the, in part two, we talk even, we go even deeper on like how things have changed over time. Anyway, it's, it's just so he's the kind of person who really, really digs storytelling and is really plugged into the people that are doing it really well and appreciative of it. I think that's the most important thing. I think the thing that came across that may not even come across in audio is like you could see how much he appreciates. You know, he talks about The Sopranos and he talks about, you know, some of these other uh, IPs. You can tell he appreciates the artistry and the work and the and the writing and and all that 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 goes behind that, that, that gets put behind something like that. And that's really that's really special to experience from someone who created these amazing things in his own right if that makes sense so cool man so proud to have another really uh, just sort of towering figure in the entertainment industry show up on the podcast happy to be here sharing their knowledge experience wisdom with the community and making us look really good it's just so cool when you meet people like this and you're like oh my god they're the most generous talented smart sweet people ever that whole idea that like you know what is it fame i don't know fame corrupts or something like that it's i don't think that's really very true very often it seems to be quite the opposite at least it's been my experience on the podcast it just amplifies whatever was already there i feel like you know so like good people stay good people and not so good people maybe it gets amplified but um he's one of the good ones he's one of the good ones we were in his office for like over an hour and 15 hour and 20 minutes so like talk about i mean this guy's about to like kick off what could potentially be you know one of the next major major television hits and he's sitting down with me and jen in his his office for an hour and 20 minutes like you gotta you gotta you gotta appreciate that generosity that was very yeah, cool super cool um what is your pick of the week my friend so, uh, total changing gears. Uh, my pick <laughs> of the week. No, it's cool, man. My pick of the week is a, a book that I read uh, recently. A couple weeks ago, I finished it. It's called Whole 
Whole, W-H-O-L-E, as in Whole Foods, Whole, Rethinking the Science of Nutrition. It's by a guy named T. Colin Campbell. He is one of the co-authors of The China Study, which is mm. uh, one of the largest studies ever done on human nutrition uh, in the history of ever. Uh, really fascinating stuff. Uh, whether you love his work or hate his work or think it's been debunked or whatever, uh, I, I really made myself a sort of armchair um, um, nutritionist, student, whatever you want to call it, of uh, nutrition and, and, and food and things like that. You guys know this. You know me. Anyway, this book was pretty eye-opening in that uh, it, it really made a few things clear. And one of them was that nutrition is so unbelievably, infinitely complex that we will never, ever, 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 ever understand it. Ever. We will never understand it. When will understand we understand it, it Trevor? Never. Never, AJ. Mm. We will never, ever, ever understand it. It is un unbelievably complex. There are bazillions of variables that make a food behave one way in the body at one moment, and then the next moment it's completely different. And he goes into some depth uh, about exactly what some of these variables are, but he does it only to illustrate that it's just not – it's a fool's errand to try and break down how an apple actually gets used by the body. And then he also talks about a lot of uh, a lot about um, the sort of what he calls the disease care uh, system rather than healthcare system in our country. The disease care mm, system and yes. really how how shoddily put together some of these nutritional studies are, and the the damage that reductionist uh, approaches to nutrition does. Like the fact that you can say, "Oh, I'm going to eat carrots because they have this vitamin which improves my eyesight." That's like some of the most asinine reasoning in the world. And all these little clickbaity headlines that are out there, dark chocolate cures cancer, red wine is good for you, and all these things, it's like they're all based on pretty much nothing. And if they make some crazy bold claim like, I don't know, saturated fat is good for you, uh, follow the money. Follow the money. See who funded that study because most of the information coming out of the nutrition uh, sector right now is uh, the product of a really poorly constructed study that is and or also funded by the very industries that want to have a favorable outcome. And so really what it comes down to, I mean, you guys can probably tell where this is going because you know me. What it comes down to is eat whole foods, mostly plants, not too much. And just all that other noise out there, just forget about it. Take a break from eating every once in a while, a la Brad Pilon, intermittent fasting. Center your diet around whole foods, plant-based. Go easy on the salt, oil, and refined sugar. You know, I, I'm a big fan of high-carb, low-fat, but I know that's not for everybody. But um, this book was really eye-opening. So in summary, and then I'll stop talking, if you have any curiosity whatsoever about this stuff, especially how uh, uh, the industry shapes our perception of food and nutrition. This is a really fascinating deep dive. He, he's a bitter man. <laughs> At least he shows up that way in this book. Uh, so, so be ready for some of that. But the dude knows his stuff. You know, He's like pushing 90. He's been around the block a few times. He knows what he's talking about. So I, I really enjoyed the book. I think it's uh, if you eat food, this is uh, something that should be uh, on the top of your reading list. Wow. If you eat food. Yeah. I have a few books that fall into that category. If you eat food, you need to read this. And this is definitely, definitely one of them. So Whole, Rethinking the Science of Nutrition by T. Colin Campbell. Uh, that's my pick of the week. Your pick of the week looks cool. 
Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess you don't have to consume it if you, if you eat food, it's sort of up to you. <laughs> it is food independent. Um, yeah. Uh, so I've been, I, I think you have as well, Trevor, I've been getting really into photography lately and, um, and I love tricking out what I can do with my silly camera in my pocket, my iPhone. And, um, I, I enjoy consuming, you know, uh, the things that I see you post online, uh, from time to time. And, uh, I was reading something out of my pick of the week from a few weeks ago, um, the outdoor magazine newsletter. And they were like the, it was like something like the six shows that'll make you want to travel or something like that. Something silly and, and kind of clickbaity, but I like traveling. And so I clicked on it. And um, discovered this show um, that is produced by National Geographic out of Australia uh, called Tales by Light, T-A-L-E-S, Tales by Light. And it's on um, Netflix. And I think there's two seasons now. I'm partway through the second season uh, at this point. But each episode highlights a different photographer who uh, is essentially – taking photos of the natural world, taking photos of like amazing human beings and cultures, taking photos of wildlife, um, taking photos uh, that will hopefully inspire people to take care of the planet and take care of the animals on it. Um, And so uh, I was just like, this is everything. This is all these things that I'm into right now and and that I love. So I wanted to share it. yeah. So, you know, if you're into photography, if you're into travel, if you're like Trevor and I and you're concerned about the environment, um, check it out. It's really cool. Um, as I said, it's on Netflix. It's called Tales by Light. Um, really beautiful show. I mean, the, the, the photography is unbelievable and the cinematography is, you know, has to keep up. So that's also unbelievable. It's really cool. It's like watching a um, it's like watching planet Earth but focused on like the photography aspect of it uh, kind of thing. Um, I mean, you got guys like swimming with whales. Another guy like went into the, uh, I don't know, the jungle to like look for the um, anaconda snakes and like swam with the anaconda snakes and people living amongst all the big cats in Africa. I mean, it's crazy all over the place but but the pictures that they take are unbelievable like some of the most amazing photography i've ever seen so tales by light on netflix check it out oh it looks so cool it looks really cool i'm looking at the website here right now and i want to click on all these videos like video clips here's one that says are sharks like dogs i'm fascinated by sharks and i love dogs let's click (laughs) on that everybody hold on no i can't wait to check this out uh rock on man good find yeah yeah, it's a good show. Score. It's and, a it's good on, show. and it's on Netflix, so super bonus. All right. So that is Whole Rethinking the Science of Nutrition by T. Colin Campbell. Link to find that on Amazon is on our website. And Tales by Light, uh, a National Geographic show, a Nat Geo show, uh, also available on Netflix, all about uh, photographing the natural world. I'm, I'm excited to check that out. Anything else uh, before we get out of here? Um, no, sir. We jam-packed episode. It's probably going to be a long one. Yeah. All right. So, guys, thank you for listening. Today's episode of Inside Acting was, of course, produced and hosted by yours truly and AJ Meyer with, as always, stellar production help from the one and only Jen Levin. 
Jen, Jen did a special shout out again to Jen. She is the one who sourced this interview and made it happen. So definitely, definitely big shout out to her. Um, you can visit us online at insideacting.net. Um, you can sign up for our uh, email dispatch. Again, we may, you know, um, distribute future information about or information about the future of the podcast through that path. So uh, if you want to stay informed about what's next, sign up for our email dispatch. Um, you can find all of our episodes there. And of course, we're on social media and pretty much wherever else you get your podcasts. Rock on. You guys can continue, if you'd like, to directly support the podcast with either a one-time financial contribution or ongoing monthly. Hey, if you feel called to, we'll take it. Just visit us at InsideActing.net to learn all about those options. And that is it for a jam-packed episode 312. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. And until then, embrace your inner Peter Pan. Peter Pan.